Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. As we head rapidly towards the 2022 World Cup Finals in Qatar, you may be forgiven for thinking that this episode must surely recount the tale of how England won the World Cup in the summer of 1966. You wouldn't be far off though, as this episode of Rainbow Valley is the story of not how we won the World Cup that summer, but how we lost it. Three months before the World Cup finals were due to take place, the much-coveted solid gold Jules Rimet trophy sat proudly on display in central London, only to be stolen in what could only be described as a daylight robbery. Fast forward a week or so and the thief is apprehended, but no sign of the most famous sporting trophy in the world, until an incredible canine steps in to save the day. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of Pickles, the unlikely hero of the 1966 World Cup final. I'm not only a fighter, I'm a poet, I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I think it's all over. It is now. It's gone. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. of August 1960, and in Rome the announcement goes out that England was successful in its bid to host the 1966 World Cup over rival bids from West Germany and Spain. It was to be the first tournament held in a country that was affected directly by World War II, as the four previous tournaments were held in neutral countries or countries out of the war theatres. But before the competition arrived in England, there was the small matter of the 1962 World Cup in Chile to take care of first. And when Gorincha has it, it's always dangerous. And Gorincha fouling Douglas. You can hardly blame him, it's extremely difficult. And now Gorincha versus... 
England managed to get through to the quarterfinals before being knocked out, losing 3-1 to the seemingly unstoppable Brazilian team. A team that would go on to eventually win, beating Czechoslovakia also 3-1 in the final. And the whistle goes for the end of the match. Brazil have beaten England 3-1 and so reached the semi-final. And so, with four years to prepare for the finals on home soil, all the stops were pulled out in order to ensure that this would be a World Cup to remember. And there was even a good chance that England might even do better than they had done four years earlier. In an age where we are so used to massive promotional campaigns for sporting events as well as huge multi-million pound sponsorship deals, the 66 finals were probably the tournament where it all began on a large scale. Pitch side advertising suddenly became noticeable, but even then it was only at the discretion of the grounds where the match was being played. For example, at Wembley Stadium there were no perimeter boards throughout the competition, but grounds such as Hillsborough and Old Trafford proudly displayed adverts for brands such as Gordon's Gin and Brill Cream. The 1966 World Cup Finals were the first to have an official mascot. Again, something that is commonplace at every major sporting tournament today. As a football fella, you all know his name And the papers tell us he's in the Hall of Fame Wherever he goes, he'll be all the rage Cos he's the new sensation of the age Dressed in red, white and blue He's World Cup Willie We all love him too World Cup Willie, a cartoon lion created by Reg Hoy, probably better known as an illustrator for many of Enid Blyton's books, was unveiled in 1965 and soon the shops and markets were filled with t-shirts, mugs, caps and toys. World Cup fever had begun. England was gearing up for the greatest football event in the world, with a little help from Lonnie Donegan. As well as all the advertising and sponsorship deals, World Cup Willie and all the paraphernalia that went with him, there were numerous events held around the country, and in particular the capital, to ensure that the public's fascination with the finals didn't dwindle. One such event was held at the Stanley Gibbons Stampex Stamp Exhibition at Methodist Central Hall in Westminster. Four months before the finals were due to kick off, the FA received a request to display the Jules Renee Trophy, the World Cup itself, at the Stampex exhibition. A couple of hundred yards from the Houses of Parliament, it was an exceptionally well-policed part of London, and a venue that should have been filled to the rafters with security, considering the exhibition also featured rare stamp collections worth over £3 million. 
FIFA president Stanley Roos agreed to the trophy being displayed, providing that the organisers met three conditions. One, the trophy must be transported by a dependable and trustworthy security firm. Two, it was to be placed in a locked cabinet and guarded 24 hours a day. And three, an insurance policy was to be taken out to the value of £30,000, ten times its actual worth. But despite all of these safeguards being put in place, somehow between 11am and 12.10pm on the 20th of March 1966, whilst the exhibition was closed and the church service was taking place on the floor below, a thief somehow managed to evade six security guards, remove a padlock, prise open the cabinet and steal the cup in broad daylight slipping out the back door without a trace. A member of staff supposedly on watch that day was quoted as saying, Nothing went wrong with our security, the cup just got stolen. There was, however, a description of the suspect. He was described as a slim male in his 30s, sporting slick back hair and a possible scar on the right side of his face. Police continued to search for clues as the inevitable hoax calls started to flood in. One male called the Press Association claiming the cup had been stolen by his mates as part of a rag stunt at the West Ham College of Technology. Another unconvincing caller offered to hand in the trophy if £50 was given to charity. And underground trains were halted as possible sightings of the culprits started to be called in. But the most convincing message arrived the following day when FA boss Joe Mears received a parcel containing part of the trophy, the lid, along with a ransom demand for £15,000, just over a quarter of a million in today's money. The message read, Dear Joe, no doubt you view with very much concern the loss of the World Cup. To me, it's only so much scrap gold. If I don't hear from you by Thursday or Friday at the latest, I assume it's one for the pot. It was Saturday afternoon. What was expected to be the most popular and best organised World Cup competition in history suddenly started to fall apart. The following day, Sunday the 22nd of March, the Football Association issued a statement to say that it deeply regrets this most unfortunate incident, which inevitably brings discredit both to us and the country. Britain had cocked up big time, and the international footballing community were quick to have their say. One particular Brazilian football official described the theft as sacrilege and added that it would never have happened in Brazil. The president of the Finnish FA, Mr Eric von Frenkel, was merely reported as saying, I am damned angry. The weekend passed and by the Monday, the 23rd of March, offers of reward money started to be declared. Comedian Tommy Trinder offered £1,000 to anyone who could return the cup personally to him. The Gillette Safety Razor Company promised £500, and Walter Max, the osteopath to many of the England players, put up 150 guineas. Numerous other firms came up with a further £4,000 between them, creating a total reward of £6,100. FIFA, fearing the worst had actually occurred, started putting plans together to order a new trophy. 
the international row about the theft of the World Cup is now squarely centred on the security arrangements under which display was authorised here. The Football Association says in a statement that it was only released on the strict understanding that it would be displayed in a glass case and there would be a day and night security guard. One private security firm brought the cup here from the FA's headquarters in Lancaster Gate and an entirely different one, Alsa Guard Services of Coulsdon in Surrey, whose motto is an alert Alsatian, was responsible and still is responsible for security inside the three million pound exhibition. Gentlemen, I'm terribly sorry that um, I'm afraid I regret at this present moment I am unable to make any real form of statement. I must ask you to appreciate the amount of pressure that I have been under for the last 30 hours. Uh, I will, however, be formulating this statement and I will present this to you within the next 48 hours. What went I'm afraid wrong, at this Reed? stage this is all I can say. Yeah. Uh, can you once tell I've had a chance, once I, I have had a chance to gather my somewhat scattered wits, then I will indeed talk with you and give you everything that I possibly can. Can you say yet whether this is a stunt or whether this is a real theft? No, it would be guesswork. Is there any possibility that it may be returned, in your opinion, from what you've learned yet? Sorry. Right. We're hoping. Either that it's returned or that we find out where it is. The chairman of the exhibition is Mr Cecil Richardson. I asked him what sort of opinions he was getting about the theft from other countries. Very harsh, of course. Um, one cannot deny that. But um, they were speaking, of course, from a considerable distance and with a minimum of facts. And I think that when eventually they do know the full details and the fact that we, we had the thing under adequate security and when perhaps um, their tempers have cooled um, and our Finnish friends and our Italian and Brazilian friends will realise that this could have happened no matter what security we'd taken, then perhaps they'll temper their remarks. But what of that ransom note? Well, the sender, known only as Jackson, eventually agreed to meet in Battersea Park. Detective Inspector Len Buggy posed as the FA Chairman's assistant, Mr McPhee, to hand over the demanded £15,000. In actual fact, what Buggy carried in his bag that day was only £500 sitting on top of a pile of newspaper. Buggy's instructions were to drive around South London for 10 minutes in order to give the thief an opportunity to observe and see if there was any police activity. The thief, real name Edward Bletchley, caught sight of a police backup vehicle and started to run. He was immediately caught, handcuffed and arrested. The police had their man, but where was the Jules Rimet trophy? Edward Bletchley, a former soldier, claimed he was just the middleman. There was no evidence to disprove this, and so he was eventually convicted as such. 
the actual thief was never found, and the actual circumstances of how the cup was taken still remain a mystery to this day. During his trial, Bletchley did, however, display an admiration for the game, saying, Whatever my sentence is, I hope that England wins the World Cup. And at last, this is where the hero of our story finally enters the stage. One week after the theft of the trophy, 26-year-old dock worker David Corbett set out from his home in Beulah Hill up in Norwood. He was on his way to the telephone box across the road to call his family as his brother's wife was expecting her first child. Taking the opportunity to take his dog for a walk, he clipped a lead onto the collar of pickles, a four-year-old black and white mongrel. They didn't get very far when Pickles started to sniff around excitedly at a laurel bush near the foot of the garden. Crouching down to see what the fuss was all about, Corbett saw a tightly bound package wrapped in newspaper and string. He picked it up and then put it back down. At this time, the IRA were at large and warnings had been issued about suspicious packages. He picked it up again and again he put it back down on the ground. Eventually, curiosity took the better of him, and picking up the parcel one more time, he slowly ripped away at the paper at one end. The object inside that end of the parcel consisted of a black disc-like object. Tearing back a little more of the paper, he could see metal shields fixed to the disc with the words Brazil, West Germany and Uruguay engraved on them. It couldn't be, surely. Tearing away the newspaper at the other end, Pickles looking up attentively, his tail wagging furiously, David Corbett could see the golden sculpture of a female figure holding a shallow dish. It had to be. It was the World Cup. Very heavy, but not as large as he would have expected it to be. Leading Pickles quickly back towards the house, Corbett called out to his wife saying, Love, I found the World Cup. Ripping off the rest of the newspaper on their kitchen table, there sat the Jules Rimet Trophy. Corbett remembered thinking that at the time the trophy really didn't look that spectacular. A sentiment that was echoed not only by his wife, but also by the police officer at Cannon Row Police Station later that day. Doesn't look that World Cuppy to me, he said, before arresting Corbett on suspicion of being the thief. Corbett had somehow become the number one suspect. After several hours of questioning, he was released, but he did, however, remain on the list of suspects for several more weeks before his name was eventually cleared. It appears that the thief, whether it was Edward Bletchley or not, is still not clear to this day, must have panicked during the handover and had abandoned the trophy on that quiet residential street. Returning home, Corbett's thoughts suddenly turned to the reward. £6,000 was a lot of money. Now he could actually afford to buy as many World Cup tickets as he liked. And of course, the hero of the hour must be rewarded too. David Corbett decided that Pickles deserved nothing less than a plate of caviar for finding the trophy. 
Pickles, however, turned his nose up at the delicacy and went out for a romp in the garden instead. Corbett did, however, buy a huge bag of bones a few days later to treat his dog. Annette Rime, the daughter of the cup's namesake, said in a newspaper interview that she was very happy at the trophy's return and that she had suffered agonies when it was stolen. And president of the Finnish Football Association, Eric von Frenkel, who only a week before was quoted as saying that he was damned angry, now told the press, I'm so glad. At first I was nearly sure it was a joke. Then followed was the beginning of national and international stardom for Pickles and a battle for the reward money for Corbett. Apparently Joe Mears, the chairman of the FA, had put in his own claim for the reward money. He stated that he had spent what he described as a very worrying week following the ransom demand. Incredibly, he believed that he was entitled to some of the money thanks to his close work with the police. After a public outcry, Mears eventually dropped his claim and Corbett and Pickles walked away with about £5,000 of the reward. Pickles would also receive a silver medal from the Canine Defence League and a special dog collar and statuette presented by Aston Villa skipper Phil Woosnam. There was a year's supply of dog food, gala lunches and village fates. David Corbett and Pickles were national heroes and were invited on numerous TV shows including Blue Peter and Magpie. The most famous animal in the country was invited to open a zoo in Coventry at the request of Jimmy Hill, where he was treated to a lunch of roast beef washed down with water from a champagne bucket. The pair were even invited to England's World Cup Winners' Banquet, where Corbett smiled quietly to himself, thinking that he'd held the World Cup in his hands long before Bobby Moore had got the chance. And as for Pickles, well, he wasn't all that bothered by all accounts, and took a pee on the five-star hotel's elevator doors. And to cap it all, Pickles even appeared in a movie entitled The Spy with the Cold Nose, alongside Lawrence Harvey, Lionel Jeffries and Eric Sykes. Nobody was ever convicted of stealing the trophy. Edward Bletchley was convicted of sending the threatening letter to the FA, but it has never been resolved as to whether he was the actual thief or just the middleman as he claimed. A few years ago, stories began circulating that a London villain called Sidney Cougalieri had lifted the trophy in an opportunistic crime whilst visiting the exhibition with his brother. Seeing that there were no guards about at the time, he somehow managed to smuggle the trophy out under his coat. But again, these claims have never been truly substantiated. At the next World Cup Finals held in Mexico in 1970, Brazil won the tournament for the third time, thereby earning the right to keep the trophy permanently. Incredibly, it was stolen once again in 1983 and has never been recovered. FIFA has since learnt its lesson and unlike the previous editions, the current trophy remains in the governing body's possession and a replica is awarded to the three-time winners instead. Pickles the dog died the following year in a tragic accident after choking on his lead. David Corbett's faithful friend still remains close, however, buried in the garden of his South Norwood home. The same home where his owner still lives today, 
paid for over 50 years ago by the reward money. Pickles the Dog, the unlikely hero of 1966, the year we lost and won the World Cup. Twenty first of October nineteen sixty six, nine thirteen AM, Panglass School in the small Welsh village of Aberfan. Inside the school, more than two hundred children and nine teachers were waiting for their first lesson of the day to begin when the air was filled with the sound of a distant rumble. A massive coal tip, a mountain of waste generated by the local mine, had collapsed and a landslide of over 140,000 tonnes of mud and debris flooded into the classrooms, burying the school and engulfing everyone inside. 116 children and 28 adults were killed. It was one of the worst industrial disasters Britain has ever seen. An accident that could and should have been prevented and a tragic account of a mistake that cost the village an entire generation of its children. Ladies and gentlemen, join me next time as Rainbow Valley presents the heartbreaking story of the Aberfan disaster. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley podcast or send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com This has been a Stinking Paws production. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.